0: Want to hear this episode ad-free? Hey, true crime friends. This is your host, Mary DePippe. And if you would like to hear your true crime and academia episodes completely ad-free, consider going to patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom and become a subscriber For $5 a month, you not only get access to now ad-free episodes of True Crime in Academia, but bonus episodes as well. Every month, I love to offer subscribers a bonus episode, such as Richard Ramirez, The Night Stalker, or Casey Anthony, or The JonBenet Ramsey Killing. I mean, you name it, I want to cover it. So... The only way you can access that is to go to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room and become a subscriber today. Like I said, it's only five dollars. I mean, think about it. I mean, you're really just buying me a coffee, which I know I say sometimes in my episodes, but it's true. And for all of the research and everything, you know, we put or I put into getting you these episodes, it would be nice to just have a cup of coffee. So go to patreon.com slash ivorytower boiler room and become a subscriber today so you can get access to those bonus episodes. And like I said, now especially ad free episodes. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash ivorytower boiler room and get your bonus episodes and ad-free episodes today. True Crime friends, welcome back to another episode of True Crime in Academia. I am your host, Mary DePippi. I hope you all had a wonderful week this week. Um, my week was just okay. Nothing crazy really going on, you know. Um, you know, work's fine, house hunting is is what it is um there was a house that we really liked but it actually just sold um you know not that we really thought that we would like get it I don't think or at least I didn't necessarily with the fact that like when we found it there was already an offer on it um you know but I kind of look at it as like at least because we really like this house now we kind of know what we like and can kind of narrow it down and you know, just help us more, I guess, in our search. But yeah, so for this week's news catch-up, I have two really interesting stories. They are complete opposites of each other, um, and one we might dive into more, depending on how much more information we're going to get about it, because it is on par with the true crime in academia theme of stories and things, or not stories, but of cases. So... Let's get into this first one. So, on July 19th, the LA Times reported that over 400 deaths have been linked to a doomsday cult in Kenya. Detectives on the scene have exhumed 12 bodies believed to be congregants of a Pastor Paul McKenzie. It is believed that the people that were killed or died that they're finding were told to end their lives in order to meet Jesus by said pastor. Thankfully, though, 95 of those people were rescued from this, you know, suicide-slash-murder plot. The alleged cult is said to be based in a forested area in Malindi, which is a southern coastal area of Kenya. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. But after Mackenzie's, this happened after Mackenzie's church had closed down in 2019. It was stated that his teachings were very controversial and that one of his preachings included asking children not to go to school. I don't know. For me, that is just. It's a different type of manipulation because you're not only have you got the parents on board now, you're essentially getting these children to think that they're in a position to make such a decision. And I just find that to be so manipulative because I feel like, you know, when this is the case, you know, he's telling them, yeah, don't go to school and making them think that they're adult enough to make that decision He's, I feel like he's hoping, and that's if he did this, because this is all alleged right now, um, that, you know, he did that in hopes that they will be able to say yes to wanting to off themselves when the time came. But that's just my take on that. And it's just, it's, I mean, it's disgusting regardless, but, you know, it's even more gross when you have dead children, you know? Now, Mackenzie, along with 36 other suspects, are currently in police custody, but they have not been officially charged. Mackenzie, however, was previously arrested and released on bond for the disappearance of children. The exact number? I am not sure. And it is presumed pretty much that these children are dead and thus victims of this plot to, you know, commit mass suicide slash murder on Mackenzie's part. Now, sometime last month, some of the thirty-six suspect and some of the ninety-five survivors went on a hunger strike while they were either in custody or at the rescue center, respectively. The prosecutor actually took the hunger strikers to court for their attempted suicide. Most of them, this whether survivors or victims or yes, yeah, survivors or suspects, They agreed to start eating again. However, one of them did die while in custody because of this. A total of 613 people have been reported missing to the Red Cross and detectives are still finding mass graves. Pathologists tasked with trying to identify some of these people are having a hard time matching DNA because most of the bodies found at this point are badly decomposed. The president of Kenya stated that this event was akin to terrorism, and he also vowed to investigate these kinds of crimes and individuals who use, quote, religion to advance their heinous acts, end quote. So, yeah, that's, like, just so crazy. I mean, obviously, I agree with the president, you know, of Kenya that that's not okay. You should not be Using something that people find solace in to get them to kill themselves because you have some sick fantasy of wanting to commit mass murder in this way. And just the addiction to the control or the feeling of control over such a group of people like I... You know, again, this is all alleged no charges have come against him at this moment or the other 36 suspects. But I'm curious to see how this all unfolds and if he will actually be charged with this. Because if he did do it like it seems that he did, then his ass deserves to go to jail. And I'm also curious to see what the other 36 suspects, their roles, because um, if they were complicit and knew about this plan, then, you know, they deserve <laughs> for their asses to go to jail too now this story like i said is more on par with true crime and academia just before the fourth of july this year three minority advocacy groups the chica project the africa community economic development of new england and the greater boston latino network sued harvard university for discrimination The lawsuit states that predominantly white children of wealthy donors and alumni are given preferential treatment over other undergraduate applicants. The Lawyers for Civil Rights group is representing these three advocacy groups in this case. In a news release, the group stated that, quote, This preferential treatment has nothing to do with an applicant's merit. Instead, it is an unfair and unearned benefit that is conferred solely based on the family that the applicant is born into. This custom, pattern, and practice is exclusionary and discriminatory. It severely disadvantages and harms applicants of color. End quote. The lawsuit was filed less than a week after the Supreme Court completely gutted the affirmative action in college admissions. Basically, they stated that schools can no longer take race into consideration as a specific basis for accepting a candidate, which is... I just, I hate this Supreme Court. I... That's all I'm going to say about that. Earlier this week, the U.S. Department of Education began their civil rights investigation into Harvard. They will basically be proving whether these claims made in the lawsuit against the university are valid and founded. If so, then Harvard will be in violation of Title IV and its implementing uh, regulations. Now, this is according to a letter from a regional director for the office named Ramsey Ajami. And this was written this past Monday. The letter also stated that, quote, Opening the complaint for investigation in no way implies that the Office for Civil Rights has made a determination on the merits of this complaint. During the investigation, the office is a neutral fact finder collecting and analyzing relevant evidence from the complainant, the university and other sources, end quote. Michael Kippens, a litigation fellow with lawyers for the Civil Rights Group, stated that their group applauds the Department of Education's probe. He stated that, quote, it shows that the Office for Civil Rights is taking this seriously. Which, as they should be. I mean, as much as it's not surprising that Harvard is doing this, or allegedly doing this, I mean, it's also... Like, finally, like, I feel like finally someone is addressing what I feel like we've all known. And I'm sure this probably goes on in every single Ivy League school that there is. I wouldn't be surprised. Because, I mean, they're extremely, most of them are extremely old institutions that, for the majority of their existence, only had white students, mainly white male students. So, you know like I said, not surprising, but, um, we will see what happens with that. And like I said, maybe we will do an even deeper dive when this investigation is over and, you know, more evidence comes to light if the evidence comes to light and things like that. So that is all I have for you for the news update without any further ado. Let's get into this week's episode. I have an awesome interview for you all to check out. I can't wait for you guys to hear it.
1: LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved recently by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media, then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W org. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of the homepage. And if you have any questions, email publisher Stephen Hemrick. That's S T E P H E N dot H E M R I C K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Hi, I'm interrupting what I know is a riveting discussion because I have to talk to you all about one of our sponsors, Broadview Press. Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher for all of your humanities related book needs. Make sure first that you use an exclusive code they're only giving to us for Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners. The code is Ivory Tower, and you get 20% off your BroadviewPress.com order. So, some of the books you can get, actually, we've had the writers on our very own Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. Have you all heard our soundwriting episode with doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez? So soundwriting, they discuss first, what does that term mean? How do you use digital media projects in the college classroom? Also, how do we interpret and analyze podcast episodes like our very own Ivory Tower Boiler Room? And we break down all of the different podcast genres and just how we're using media in our own lives, and especially if you're teaching media. And we even bring up artificial intelligence, which I know is a hot-button issue right now. Also, make sure you listen to Jeffrey, Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock, who talks about being a mad scientist of sorts as a composition scholar, and he talks about what it means to do pop culture research and teaching in the college classroom. Then in the fall, we had Dr. Ann Stevens on to break down what it means to be a literary theorist. And we even play a really fun literary criticism game where Ann uses all of these different theories to approach the Wizard of Oz film. So it's such an enjoyable episode. We love having the Broadview Press sponsor our podcast and again use that code ivory tower for 20% off all of your broadview press texts i can't wait to feature a really exciting episode with broadview press about the philosophy of sport so that stay tuned is coming up in our summer season
0: hey true crime friends with me today I have a very special guest he is the host of the podcast that old gay classic cinema and he is currently studying English at Lehman College and today I am so excited because some of you are probably wondering like okay he studies English he does he talks about a film how does this possibly fit into true crime well He is working on a case study as part of his English courses and stuff at Lehman College. And it is all about the connection between fairy tales and female poisoning. See, there it is. See, that's the connection right there, guys. So without any further ado, thank you so much, Christian Garcia, for being here. Mary,
2: it is my honor to be here. Thank you so much for allowing me to to guest on this episode, on this very special episode. I cannot wait Mm -hmm. to discuss what we have in store for today.
0: Yes, I am so excited. So as I mentioned in the introduction, you basically are pointing out some of these parallels in fairy tale poisonings, some famous ones like Snow White and the Poison Apple, um, with other present or not really present day but obviously real women who poisoned people Mm -hmm. so how exactly did you think this up it was
2: actually um funny enough it was my professor who gave me the um initiation to go about it because my first um my first version of this case study was going to be about male killers and their backstories, seeing how they kill, what their, what their motivations were. And then during a lesson uh, the past semester, she was like, she said, you know, you, it doesn't have to be set in stone. You could change it. Like she gave us the idea. She's like, you could use poisoning. Women who use uh, poison as their, as their weapon of choice. And I said, you know what? It clicked in me. And then I said, "You know what? I could do a parallel between fairy tale villains, female fairy tale villains, and compare them, mirror them, if you will, with <laughs> with um, with past cases that I that I researched." And it was very interesting. Everything that I dug up and everything that I was able to unearth, and it was very scary. Yet, at the same time. It it mirrored what these fairy tales were like, and some of them are actually based on real life. I never knew that.
0: Really, mm-hmm. I didn't know that either. Which can you elaborate on? Which one?
2: Let me open up. Because
0: I'm so I, you know, there's so always so much more brutal than the Disney version that we're all accustomed to seeing. Oh
2: yes, Disney and... kind of watered it down for. Me. <laughs>
0: But I mean, with um,
2: let me see, where did I put it? Uh, oh, there we go. Uh so in my case I said, um, when we analyze fairy tales, they can show us a bit of our soul underneath. But in truth, they are based on real life people. The tale of Snow White is based on the life of Marguerite von Waldeck in a six a 16th century noblewoman. Her brother employed young men to work in mines to gather the jewels they found out they found, but because of these backbreaking commands, the children were slowly deformed, giving them the label of dwarfs. Even the poison apple is steeped in truth. Before the young deformed children went to work in the mines, an old man who they suspected stole from them gave them gave each of them a tainted apple.
0: Crazy! So
2: it's insane how the grim fairy tales how the grim brothers actually took something from history and they were able to weave it as well as using history themselves to weave some sort of moral lesson for children
0: yeah it's always and it's always interesting that these very intense stories do have like a moral behind it and sometimes you know not to say that kids these days are soft but i mean like compared to the children who had to grow up with these actual stories i mean god help them like oh my gosh you know
2: i mean actually they they were used as like um cautionary tales i guess that's what fairy tales are called nowadays but um they're like oh you know they're used as legends where like or lessons for kids like say like, oh you know if you don't do this and you'll get in trouble just like hansel and gretel or if you don't do this then you'll get then you'll get pushed on a well or something i don't know just
0: just <laughs> something, <laughs> something horrible is gonna happen to you if okay you don't do your chores if you don't do your chores
2: something bad is gonna happen to you just exactly. do your chores. <laughs>
0: and such grave grave consequences. I mean, scare yes. tactic was high back then.
2: <laughs> I mean, imagine kids now they're like, "No. Yeah, we don't care. Do what do your worst." And then I, then they were like, "Yeah, we're going to we're going to listen to mom about that. Let's yeah. not. <laughs> let's not let's not make a a breadcrumb trail.
0: Let's yeah. just stick <laughs> to the path that we know." <laughs> So aside from fairy tales, you also talk about two serial killers, not just like one off killers, but two actual female serial killers who used poison as their method of choice. And they are Velma Barfield and Jane Topin. Now, how, when did you find out about them? When did you decide you wanted to use them for your case study or You know, like, what kind of came first? Did you know about them first and kind of were like, okay, these are perfect? Or did you have to do some digging to find them?
2: You know, Google helped a lot, you know?
0: I love Uh, Google. Shout out to Google.
2: All I did was type in female serial killers using poison. And I found these two women at the top of the list. Um, First was Jane uh, Toppin, who... I think is kind of the pre-Nurse Ratchet of the group. Mm-hmm. And not to mention that she was a nurse and she killed her patients. Um, but the weird thing about it is that she loved to watch them suffer in pain and ultimately mm-hmm. die. That was the really weird thing. But I guess that's what serial killers like to do. They like to view their victims in pain. They like to view the end result and not really have any conscience as to the consequences um Mm -hmm. i mean she killed her elderly patients and stole their belongings she later killed her landlords other nurses and fellow doctors without being detected until she used a metallic poison on one of her victims and that was how she was caught an investigation was uh shortly sparked
0: which is crazy to think that like I mean, obviously, I think, if I remember from your paper correctly, she was around, like, the late 1800s. Yes. Like, that period. So, I mean, obviously, the police force was not really a huge thing back then. Obviously, they have no sort of investigative skills or, you know, the amount of knowledge that, you know, the police officers today do. Um, But, uh, you know. The fact that it was like she messed up that's how she got she caught like it. it was literally one thing she messed up and it's just crazy you know, to think be, that she never would have been caught if she,
2: she, killed, she killed 31 people in her time yep. crazy mm-hmm.
0: like today obviously to that would not fly because mm-hmm. you know we have we can see these patterns and we understand you know, but even still, sometimes they slip through the cracks, and you still get like some of these killer nurses that are out there, that are just you know, it's mm-hmm. trying to be you know, angel of death.
2: I hear yes, I fully agree. And you know, I've been rewatching a lot of SVU recently, binging um, mm-hmm. on that, and it's 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 amazing how much, uh, police officers and FBI psychologists can detect what certain serial killers tics are and I love that about this show is because they're able to to view it through the lens of both the 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 investigators and the criminals themselves
0: so Yeah. yeah I know the psychology behind why people do these things and how they do them and how people can pick up on those traits and kind of narrow down. Now, granted, it's not a perfect science. You know, there's obviously exceptions to every rule that exists, Mm -hmm. but, you know, at least there's something, you know, that they can do and, you know, attempt to figure out. So (laughs) now, obviously, your paper just focuses on women and poisoning. Why do you think statistically that poisoning is considered to be like the first murder choice or first method of murder choice for women?
2: You know, it's funny. Actually, while I was researching, I found this article by Dan Keating, uh, the weapons men and women often use to kill. And I found this uh, statistic that he wrote tongue twister (laughs) that poisoning stands out though with all guns removed women are four or almost four times as likely as men to use poison it is used in just over one percent of killings by men and just over four percent of killings by women the only other weapon with a bigger difference is drowning used seven times as much by women but used less than the third as often as poisoning only 330 only 311 killers use drowning
0: is dead which is also another crazy statistic like i Mm -hmm. i normally don't think of drowning as always the main method of murder i usually find it to be like the cause of death because someone pushed someone into a river and can't you know that person could swim or you know any sort of you know type of scenario where the person's incapacitated and can't get out of the body of water and not being physically held under but I mean still counts
2: (laughs) but I mean to answer your question I find it really um interesting that women use this tactic as a sort of I find as a sort of um manipulation tactic that they're able to to still have power over their victims and they're able to control them mm-hmm. no matter what the cost. And it was the same with Jane Chopin, you know, she actually used this as like a sexual thrill as well. She loved to caress her victims and hold them close as, as, as they were about to die. Um, mm-hmm. Which mind you was not really all that sexual, but she found it right. pleasing in some ways. For I don't know what the reason was. But um I don't want to
0: know. <laughs> no,
2: I don't But the weird the really funny thing is, is that what I find mirrors these these uh cases as well as fairy tale female villains is the fact that they have this sense of wanting to protect themselves and wanting to to keep their power and to not lose their vanity in a way that some some of these women who use poison are very vain. Mm-hmm. They do not care about the other person. They'd rather feel their power grow within them as they're dying which I find fascinating but at the same time it's very dark so
0: yeah Yeah. and I feel like in some cases like especially with um Toppin being a nurse um you know it's almost like that nurturing aspect of women that it's like it's under the guise of I'm being nurturing I'm trying to you know nurse you back to health type of when re- in reality you're the one causing it and they have no idea exactly. and that's another like crazy like trying to wrap your head around that you know I mean um it's really
2: weird because as she was a nurse she knew all this stuff about how to fiddle with her patients tubes how to fiddle with iv Uh, plugins plugins sorry I mean (laughs) um and she was able to poison them that way directly with just kind of maneuvering it into her own design which I find mirrors a lot of what these fairy tale villains have in common is that they not to put it in a in a trope, but they kind of want to be the fairest and they don't really care who gets in their way. And no matter what Jane Toppin's motivations were, she just wanted to remain in power. She don't she did not want to seem as if she was seen as weak. Mm-hmm. She wanted to be the one in power. She wanted to be the person demonstrating that she can do this. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it took her and she was able to do so in a timely manner it's just scary you know
0: (laughs) yeah for sure you know and to like you said like she killed 31 people Mm -hmm. and no one really noticed no you know and she picked her victims so specifically it seems like and elderly
2: patients mostly like those who were not long for this earth those who um didn't really have much going for them but she found that elderly patients could be a goldmine rather than tending to the younger patients because you know maybe she wants a sugar daddy I don't know
0: (laughs) that you know and quite frankly you can't take it with you and no? if she gets to it first, you know, she is probably most often the first one there. So, exactly. you know, she's kind of like, well, finders keepers.
2: Uh,
0: yes. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm going to get rich off these people that I killed. OK. Which, again, is another like interesting, you know, motive for her, like that it is financial as well as, you know, sexual and, you know, for control as well. Um, you know, I feel like sometimes you don't always find that with women necessarily for money. Not always. I mean, it does obviously happen, but I feel like it doesn't happen as much as you would think.
2: I mean, some do it for freedom. Some do it for vanity. Some mm-hmm. do it for just wanting to not be tied to anybody. Some of them just do it just for the hell of it. They don't really some of them don't even know why they're doing it. They just find it so enticing.
0: hmm
2: You know, they find it just so, it, it pulls them in and they don't know how to exactly get out. And they're just transformed. Yeah. Into this otherworldly creature and they're not even sure how it happened.
0: Mm-hmm. There was one serial killer that I'm aware of who was a woman and used poison um, poison as her method. However, though, she was also I want to I feel like she was in the 1600s when she was around. Her name was Juliana Tafana, and she owned like a cosmetic like that version of a cosmetic store, essentially. And for certain women, like you had to know someone who knew someone who knew kind of a thing and you had to be trustworthy. And if you had, say, an abusive husband that you could no longer stand or, you know, your husband was just terrible, you know, or you're just a horrible person and wanted your husband dead for his money, you know, things like that. You could go there and ask for a perfume called Aqua Tafana. Huh. Aqua Tafana, spoilers, was not perfume. It was poison. And she would give you instructions of how to dose and to make it look like he was getting sick over time before he eventually died. Oh it wasn't until, God. like, I forget how long she was able to do it for. Her daughter also got involved, it was said. Um, they don't know how many people were killed from this poison, but she was arrested because she was someone you know, spilled the beans by accident. And, you know, she got caught and spent the rest of her days in jail. But like I said, no one knows how many men died because she gave these women poison. Wow. that I feel like she's got fairy godmother vibes, almost. Like That's... a very sinister fairy godmother. I...
2: Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really interesting. I've actually never heard of that case before, but thank you for bringing that up. I never, wow. I love that, that you have a, that you can, sorry folks to get dark for a second, but I'm weird. That's
0: what they're here for. That's what they're here for.
2: (laughs) That you could just go into a store and ask someone, can I get so-and-so to poison my husband? What is the best thing for them? Oh, sweetie, I have the perfect thing for you. There's this perfume that I use, that I that I've recommended to my customers, and it just deteriorates your men over time, and then they eventually die. Like, mm-hmm. why don't they have that? <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: know, it's, it's not like anyone, so easy. But
2: some men of this century would be good to be to be of use of that perfume not to mention our current ex-president but you know, <laughs>
1: you know
0: <no>. So, <laughs> does his name rhyme with frump yes yes that is a perfect rhyme we will not be discussing that man no we'll yes that's mr that promise day yeah. Nope. no <laughs> Not today. That was our tiny little second <laughs> of politics for you all. Now we're done. Now we're done. Now we're back to the real <laughs> point of this yes. poisoning. Poisoning. <laughs> but yeah, I can absolutely send you some of that case information if you want to use it. Um, but yeah, I've always found that story so fascinating because, you know, like, and it's one of those things where she's like an anti hero. Because obviously you should not be facilitating murder. However, who knows how many women like whose lives that she saved who you know, who literally would have been killed by their husband. I wonder if
2: this ever came into like book form because I'd love to read about it. I know. I need to like see, I need to dive deep. I need to do a Lady Gaga research and find if I can see anything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Oh my gosh. All right. And so one of my other questions that I had for you, because obviously as we're talking, I mean, obviously this is a very fascinating, like just case study in general. Like if this was my case, like I'm jealous that you have this case study because I wish in college I had this case study (laughs) because I would have had a full field day with it. Um, so far, with your research, what has been like the most interesting thing that you have discovered?
2: Well, first of all, I want to give a shout out to my professor Sandra Holly, who was able to allow me to contribute to her classroom in a in a grand way, and she was always she was always very accepting and very willing to listen to whatever students had to say so I just want to give a little shout out to her. Um but what I found really interesting while researching this was how much I didn't know about some of these women and some women that I was going to use but some of them just didn't make the cut and I just found these two women as, as well as uh, Lucretia Borgia um mm-hmm. who I also found was one of the very first women in the medieval in yep medieval times renaissance medieval Renaissance, one of those types, (laughs) to (laughs) use um, poison as her own weapon of choice as well. Um, That actually led me down many rabbit holes that I do not wish to go back to because they were dark and scary and (laughs) not for me. Um, But yeah, so what I found very interesting was the fact of how little I knew and how much I learned and how I feel I can now detect women who can use poison as a weapon because some of them have maybe some telltale signs while like maybe being questioned or something like that not that I've ever experienced it not that I would want to but absolutely you know, not a detective in another life maybe <laughs> I could use some of these skills to use um, but yeah so what I yep that's yep
0: (laughs) (laughs) how has your view on these fairy tales that you're paralleling have changed since you know doing this or just like in general like have they changed because of knowing the real life story behind it or you know knowing maybe the more the non-Disney, the grim version of it. Oh my
2: goodness. There are so many aspects of these fairy tales that I wished I could have discussed in my paper, but it would have, that would have been like a 30 page paper. And I'm just happy that I was able to whittle it down (laughs) to the pages that I did. It was just so fascinating to me how much of these fairy tales were, were, not only taken but they were inspired by real life events and the fact that they actually happened holds a much more resonant tone with me where it's where not only the magic is taken away from it but the historical aspect of it also means a lot to me because I do love history in some aspects and knowing this whole freaking aspect it just it's more riveting to me and knowing the fairy tales, knowing the Disneyfied version of it, <laughs> it's it's just so educational for me to learn more about it and to and to discuss and to discuss it. I just I love talking about fairy tales, and it's just it's enticing to me that they're that that the Grimm brothers actually were able to get to go as dark as they did. And it's, it's fascinating how their audience has grown from the late 1600s to 2023. Mm -hmm. It's insane how many authors and other novelists are inspired by their tales and are able to recreate them in their own image, but still Mm -hmm. using those key elements, which I still find very fascinating. I'm not sure if you've read, Gregory Maguire's Mirror Mirror before um but they use a lot of renaissance but he uses a lot of renaissance aspects as well as using um Lucretia Borgia as one of the um Mm. side villains as well I believe I haven't finished the book but don't quote me on that but I know (laughs) that the Borgias are intact in this story I'm just not I'm not sure if Lucretia, Lucretia is part of this tale um it's just so inspiring to the fact that both Gregory and a lot of many different novelists, I'm also reading this book called The Book of Gothel, which uses, um, mm-hmm. which is another retelling of Rapunzel, but through the eyes of the villain, uh, Mother Gothel. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yes, I heard about this
2: story. I need to send you the link because it's one of yes. my favorite books. And they use what the author Mary uh, does is that she uses uh, 16th. Century Germany as her backdrop, and she uses not only um aspects of history but also fairy tale uh, lore in between, like she weaves them in um through it. So what I uh, yeah, that's what I found fascinating is that I was able to discover many different articles depicting these fairy tales, and I was able to incorporate them in my paper, and I was able to show uh, my professor as well as hopefully yourself and maybe others who might be interested in learning about it other aspects of fairy tales that they might not have recognized
0: exactly i mean and that's another reason why i loved your case study so much because it made me think about these these fairy tales in a different way like i never would have considered to put you know the wicked queen from snow white and you know even like Aqua, to, you know, to Julian Tafana or, you know, Jane Topin, you know, Velma Barkfield, I believe, you know, is how to Velma pronounce Barfield, her last name. Yeah. Yes. Bar- okay. okay. I always forget. I'm terrible with pronouncing it's names. Okay. So, so I'm always trying to, you know, make sure I'm doing right by people, <laughs> even though these women are dead.
2: <laughs> yeah. Velma actually got the uh, death penalty. So she oh, did. Yes. Wrong did. So So she was actually one of the first women who was sentenced to death by needle injection. She was one of the very first.
0: Ooh, fun fact, everyone. Now you know. Now you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Christian, thank you. Well, actually, before we go, I have one more question for you. Yes. It's a little one. Right ahead. What is your favorite fairy tale? Oh, my goodness. If you had to I pick so one. Many,
2: but just, if I had to choose one, I know. I'd have to say Rapunzel. Not only the mm-hmm. fact that we had to deal with being locked up in our houses as if we were locked up in yes. Randall Towers during the early stages of the pandemic, which I found very comforting. But also because mm-hmm. I'm an I'm an introvert, it's like I don't care. I'm Same. not going out anyways So <laughs> <Same. laughs> I just find the tale of Rapunzel so invigorating mm-hmm. not only for the the he, the the heroine of the tale but also for the villain because I love me some baddies sometimes
0: yes <laughs> yes I love it well Christian thank you so much for being here can you please tell my audience where they can find you yes well they can
2: find me um my podcast is called that gayo classic cinema we review classic films but review them through a, a queer lens This month, actually next Monday, this coming Monday, we'll be recording our new episode of Hello Dolly, as well as recording our new episode of Mary Poppins coming on later in the month to celebrate its, oh, its anniversary. I don't know which number it is, but it is a very high number. So we're very excited for that. You could find us there on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as our Instagram page at that old gay classic cinema. And you could find our updates on there as well as new episodes and links to our episodes. And yeah, we'd look forward to hearing from you guys. Thank you, Mary, as well for having me on. Thank you, Ivory Tower Boiler Room, for allowing us to be here today. And we're just so grateful that you were that we were able to contribute.
0: Oh, thank you so much. All right, guys, you know where to find Christian. Search that gay old classic cinema and take a lesson. I promise you, you guys will love it. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and Cricut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E made it. Or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So, go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It. And Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It. Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, and ordered today.
1: Hi, this is Andrew. So, you know, when I'm not here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, sometimes I'm actually invited to be on other podcasts as a guest. Well, there is one podcast run by Christian Garcia and um, his co-host, Nate. That I absolutely love. It is called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. So calling all you classic cinema fans out there and those who love queer theme cinema, which I think there's a lot of you who are listening right now where you've uh perked up. So follow them on Instagram at that old O L Gay Classic Cinema. The first ever episode I was featured as a guest, it's The Sound of Music. I got to talk about being Captain Von Trapp in high school, and it's just such an exciting conversation. They've also featured discussions about Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, which features guests from uh, the podcast The Garland Gab, and Down the Yellow Brick Pod. There is a deep dive of Cinderella, and recently they had an episode on the film Giants, starring Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, and James Dean. And actually one of the uh, guests, Lauren Randall, I know from Stony Brook University's PhD English department. So shout out Lauren. Um, You can listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It's definitely such a great listen. So why not listen to it after you listen to this current episode on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room? Thanks for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, and I'm so thankful and grateful for all of you listeners. Make sure you follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room, on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room, and we even have a Facebook page if you want to follow us there. Head to our Patreon patreoncom slash room. $5 a month gets you ad-free episodes, video interviews and bonus episodes. You also get our True Crime and Academia series with Mary DePippi. Thanks to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team. Mary is our chief contributor. I'm our executive director. And we also have an amazing group of interns. They include Andrea, Caitlin, Sarah, Rosie, and Sheila. Thank you all.